A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimbare Brüder in America. So tausend Schafes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this is a episode about the city of Philadelphia, the Jewish uh, community and history of Philadelphia and our ongoing series of great American Jewish cities. And this has been generously sponsored by Yaakov Pearson on behalf of the Pearson family and in honor of Rabbi Avram and Rebetzin Batsheva Shem Tov, who the Lubavitcher Rebbe sent as his shluchim to Philadelphia in 1962. In their nearly 60 years as Chabad Lubavitch regional directors, they oversaw the establishment and the development of over 30 Chabad institutions across the Delaware Valley. This should be They should be blessed with long, happy, healthy years, with the strength to continue their exemplary, exemplary work in Philadelphia and around the, gro- the globe. And Le'ili Nishmas, Mrs. Chaya Mushka Pearson, Olea Sholem, who devoted her life to Shlichus and raising her six children in Philadelphia. She was known for her constant optimism, amuna, and betachen. Now, when we get to Philadelphia, um, so there's, there's a few points. Uh, number one, the, it's a historical city in general, in American history. And it's the week of July 4th just now. And in fact, we just made a dedication a Lubavitcher Shliach. So it's interesting that uh, it was just the week of July 4th and the week of Yud Beis Tammuz, the Chag HaGeula. Uh, when the Rebbe Rayats, the Friedrich Rebbe, got out of uh, the Soviet Union. And, in fact, he we'll, hopefully we'll talk about it. He visited Philadelphia and, and was by the Liberty Bell and everything. So there's a lot of significance of July 4th and Yud Beis Tammuz being the same week. And the coincidence continues with Jewish History Soundbites uh, doing the episode on Philly um, that same week. In any event, but it's a historical city and there's loads of Jewish history there as well. So it presents a challenge. So what I imagine is that, first of all, this would only be part one. And um, we'll hopefully have a part two uh, on Philly. So if you'd like to uh, sponsor part two, so be in touch with me, because I don't think we'll get to you know, half of what we uh, we need to talk about, about the great uh, Jewish history of Philadelphia. So there'll probably be two parts. Uh, secondly... There are some, um, probably a few 
Philadelphia personalities and places and institutions that are, uh, you know, famous enough and important enough and historical enough on their own right to merit their own episodes. So perhaps we'll get to those in the future as well, and we'll only mention them in the context of the development of the Philadelphia Jewish community. So it's a it's a very old Jewish community. It's from colonial times. In fact, when I started preparing, so I was I was given the heads up by a an alert uh, listener of Jewish history soundbites that I should not spend too much time on the colonial era because every American yeshiva student goes on their eighth grade trip to Philadelphia and goes to visit Mikveh Israel synagogue and hears about Chaim Solomon who funded the Revolutionary War. So it's unnecessary to spend too much because everyone knows that part of uh, of uh, Philadelphia history. So um, the way he generously said it was that even yeshivish people know that part of American history. So so we won't spend too much time on that. But it does it is an old colonial Jewish community. I mean, when William Penn founds the city of Philadelphia in the seventeen sixties uh, forties, I don't even remember. Um, he, there are already Jews, Jewish traders there, and they preceded the founding of the city even, and um, and they develop uh, over time. And already in colonial times, the foundation of Mikveh Israel is uh, is started, and um, later they build the shul. It actually develops during the Revolutionary War, and at one point it receives funding from when they were in financial trouble no, from. No less a personage than Benjamin Franklin, who's probably Philadelphia's most famous citizen, and um, and it be, and and Mikveh Israel becomes a a landmark uh, in in uh, in American Jewish history. It's one of the oldest shuls, longest functioning shuls, and it's like like basically the entire American Jewish community at the time a Sephardic uh, shul synagogue, and um, and uh, a it 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 develops during that time. Now, during the Revolutionary War, one of the early leaders of the Philadelphia Jewish community was actually a prominent New York uh, uh, Jewish family and rabbinical leader, and exactly a rabbi, I guess a reverend, Gershom Sykes Mendes, a very prominent family. Members of his family founded the New York Stock Exchange and other uh, important New York City Landmarks, and he was a rabbi of the Spanish Portuguese synagogue in New York City for many years. But during, he was a patriot. He was a an American patriot. And during the Revolutionary War, when the British take over New York, so he walls up, literally locks the doors of the Spanish Portuguese synagogue, and he heads first to Connecticut and then to Philadelphia, where he heads Mikveh Israel for several years. One of the early prominent Philly families is the Levy family, who make a huge mark on early nineteenth century. 18th century, 19th century American Jewish history, Jonas Levy, and one of the most famous uh, Levy's, probably the most famous Levy was Uriah Phillips Levy. Phillips and the Levy's, both of them are prominent Jewish families uh, in Philadelphia during that time. And though he spends much of his life in New York, but Uriah was born in, um, in, uh, in Philadelphia, and he eventually... Uh, gets fame for his naval career. He spent about a half a century in the Navy, not much of it in active duty, but he became legendary for his six court martials and for facing anti-Semitism and for 
and for being demoted and then promoted and finally reaching the rank of Commodore, which at that time was was the highest rank in the United States Navy. They didn't have admirals and grand admirals, especially during the 19th century. And uh, he attains fame. He also abolished flogging in the United States Navy. So he was a really colorful personality, an interesting personality. And, um, and he um, is originally from Philadelphia as well. Move on to, uh, again, a, a famous and important leader in American Jewish life in the 19th century was the German-born Isaac Leeser. And although he was associated with the Mikveh Israel synagogue, which was Sephardic, but he was, um, he was from Germany, and he came very quite young. He was an orphan. He came quite young to, uh, to America in the early 1800s, 1824, and he makes his mark on American Jewish life, although he was not a rabbi, and he never was ordained, but he was a uh, leader, very active, a big writer. He had a several periodicals, the most famous of which was The Occident, and that would, you know, promulgated Jewish values, traditional values. He was an early um, warrior, as it were, for uh, traditional Judaism and against the new inroads of reform with the great uh, German-Jewish immigration. You have to understand when Lisa arrived in the United States, there was less than 20,000 Jews, probably less than five, even less, 10, 10, 5 to 10,000 Jews in, in America. And by the time he passed away in 1868, there was about a quarter of a million Jews, and almost all of them were from Germany, Bavaria, and other parts of Germany. And many of them, or most of them, were reform or on their way to assimilation. So he um, was his own publisher. He writes and translates books and, and the Siddur and Tanakh and the Chumash and, 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 and about traditional Jewish life and and he, you know, incorporates this sermon into rabbinical Jewish life in America and in English even, right, uh, to, to, to speak in, uh, from the pulpit in English, which was a, a novelty at the time. And he, and, he, um, and he tries to organize American Jewish life, communal life, synagogues. Um, he, he debates, uh, you know, a lot of polemic, he was a bit of a polemicist in the, in the press and in speeches, um, against the inroads of reform, the early reformers, and eventually Isaac Mayer Wise and others, and he becomes a leaves a very strong imprint on on American Jewish life. By the time he passed away in 1868, um, of course, the Gratz family was very prominent in Philadelphia. Rebecca Gratz, great philanthropist who never married, um, but the first Sunday school in Philadelphia was named for her. And so you have, um, besides for Mikveh Israel, you have Rodef Shalom, which was the first Ashkenazic uh, synagogue in not in, just in Philadelphia, not just in the United States, but the but it's it was the oldest Ashkenazi shul in the Western Hemisphere. Started in 1795, and it was a traditional shul for many years, uh, officially Orthodox, and it only became Reform and became a center of Reform. Uh, much, much later. But it did become a center of reform. Um, and that was at the end of the 19th century, which I'll get to um, when, when Rabbi Marcus Jastrow was the, the rabbi there. But once we're still on the colonial era, so there happens to be a myth, which I wasn't even aware of until recently, um, that there are those who think that Betsy Ross uh, was Jewish. Um, she wasn't. 
In fact, once we're saying myths about Betsy Ross, she probably also did not sew the first American flag. So if there's myth, myths about Betsy Ross in Philadelphia, she was from Philadelphia. That's about the only thing true in the story. And that she did sew flags for the uh, continental troops. Um, other people who were thought to be Jewish from Philadelphia was Mike Schmidt, uh, Hall of Fame, uh, Hall of Famer, um, baseball player. Um, perhaps the people got mixed up with him because there was a rabbi, Rabbi Nachum Schmidt uh, of Chabad, who's in Philadelphia until today. And so maybe people thought that if there's a rabbi, Menachem Schmidt, then perhaps Mike Schmidt is Jewish also, but Mike Schmidt is not Jewish. But if we go back to uh, Rodev Shalom, the Ashkenazi shul, um, so one of the rabbis there in the 1800s, a fascinating personality, Rabbi Marcus Jastro, is from Germany, was an Orthodox rabbi, he was a bit of a progressive Orthodox rabbi, um, but he becomes actually a rav in Warsaw, in Poland. He's a German rabbi, and he's brought into Warsaw in the 1850s to become a rabbi. Now, at the time, uh, Poland, uh, Congress Poland is under the nominal control of the Tsarist Russian Empire, and there is revolts of the Polish aristocracy and uh, uh, from time to time. And and Rabbi Jastrow, like many others, like Rabbi David Meisels, who was in Krakow and also in Warsaw, later many of the Rabbanim in, in uh in uh, in Poland at the time, supported the revolt against the Tsar, and and Jastrow was actually arrested uh, by the uh, by the Tsarist police and put in jail um, for being for supporting the revolt. He had gone to a funeral um, and and, and uh, led his entire shul. It was actually a Shabbos morning. They walked a funeral of those who had been killed by the Russians, Polish patriots who had been killed by the Russians, a show of solidarity of the Jewish community with the revolt. In any event, he got out of jail. He's sent back to um, to Germany. He tries to make it back to Warsaw to, to get get his position back. He was his health wasn't wasn't good at that time. But in, it was in the midst of the 1861 um, Polish revolt, and he wasn't able to make it back to Warsaw. So instead, he moved to America. When he was in Poland, one of the innovations that he did as a rabbi in Warsaw was that he gave a speech in Polish, from the pulpit, which was very revolutionary at the time. First of all, he had to teach himself Polish. He was German. And and that he gave a speech in Polish, which was in the vernacular, God forbid. So so uh, that was one of the first ones. So when people give, when rabbis give speeches in English in, in the United States today, which is also the vernacular, so one of the pioneers of that uh, was Marcus Jastrow. In any event, he moves to America. He becomes a rabbi in Philadelphia. And though he's a, considered a progressive Orthodox rabbi and he's famous for a lot of his writings and his, his dictionaries and many other writings, he's one of the prominent founders and act, actively involved in the Jewish Publication Society, which also has its beginnings in Philadelphia, along with Cyrus Adler, which I'll get to in a second. And Jastrow um, actually was opposed to reform. And when his synagogue... Uh, he couldn't stop them from turning reform. He resigned, or they had him resign, and he had to leave his shul. And uh, and he became a rabbi of another shul uh, in his later years. He's Rabbi Emeritus, and uh, and in of of the, of the previous shul. But um, but he he's a, 
someone who was on the fringe. Uh, on the, on the, it was a progressive as an Orthodox. So the, in, as far as Orthodoxy was concerned, he was too modern. He was too progressive. But as far as reform was concerned, he was not pro-reform and he was opposed to the reform and he remained the traditionalist. He kind of uh, remained in the middle, which is why he was one of the founders of the seminary, of the Jewish Theological Seminary. I have to remember that the 1885 Pittsburgh Platform made reform in the United States radical. It was radical reform. And rabbis like Jastra, rabbis like another Philadelphian rabbi, an Italian rabbi named Sabato Morias, who was a rabbi in Mikveh Israel after Lezer uh, left, again, was either left or was asked to leave. And, and uh, Morias... Um, was a very prominent and beloved and well-known, respected rabbi, very educated, uh, well-spoken, and very well-liked by many within the Jewish community and outside of the Jewish community, and very uh, scholarly, uh, wrote on a vast variety of subjects. And he um, was the main, because of the radical reform, because of the, the traditionalists were not happy with Hebrew Union College and the way reform was going, they started the Jewish Theological Seminary. So Morias, Jastro, uh, Cyrus Adler, another Philadelphia figure, and others are involved in the founding of the seminary, which was traditional in the beginning. And it was basically orthodox until the first few decades of its existence. It wasn't what we would consider a conservative Judaism as, as we know it today. And, um, excuse me, and it was considered, you know, to the right and more traditional than the reform. Um, and it was a rabbinical seminary. So that brings us to Cyrus Adler, who was a very important figure in American history, American-born. Um, he is the, the president of a, a very interesting college, the first college for Jewish studies in the United States, uh, and, and only for a long time, Dropsy College, which is also in Philadelphia, and he's the president there for over 30 years. And it's uh, it, it, Dropsy College itself is an interesting story. Um because it was a college for Jewish studies. It gave out degrees. The first person who got a doctorate from there was Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Bernard Revel, who was, was right from Lithuania and from Kovna, learned in Tells, but he comes to America and he gets his doctorate at Dropsy for his, his writing about the Karaites. And eventually he becomes the president of of uh, Rabbinius Gilchan, and he starts Yeshiva College, which eventually becomes Yeshiva University. Now, Dropsy College, also, which eventually was uh, became part of University of Pennsylvania, it doesn't exist as its own entity. It's the Judaic Studies Department in UPenn today. So I guess, I guess it's an upgrade because now it's an Ivy League college, but it's not its own. Uh, it's not its own entity anymore for many years already. But for a long time, it, it was a Jewish studies college. One of the professors there for a period of time, for two stints actually, was the famous Jewish historian named Professor Benzion Netanyahu, um, who also came from a Lithuanian background, who was a historian of Spanish Jewry and written quite extensively. And he had a son who was killed, uh, Yonatan, who was killed in the Entebbe raid. He has another son, Dr. Ido Netanyahu, and he has another son who is a fellow by the name of Binyamin Netanyahu, um, who you might have heard of as well. Now, he's a professor of history at Dropsy, this is Nebensi Netanyahu, and his son Binyamin Netanyahu is not a historian. 
Um, so this, his children grow up in Philly. His children grow up in Philadelphia. And they go to school there. And they attend the Reform Synagogue there. And, uh, and uh, at one point, his son becomes Ben Nittai when he's in MIT. Um, and uh, and Netanyahu is just too long and too Jewish sounding. But he went back to Netanyahu and he moved back to Israel. So is it interesting that the Philly was also the host to the Prime Minister of the State of Israel when he grew up. Um, now Cyrus Adler, getting back to him, got from him from Dropsy College, got sidetracked there, but um, he he was also one of the heads of the Jewish Theological Seminary, which was in New York, so he would commute. And interesting that Rabbi Revel would also sometimes, at, for, at one point was in Philly, and was also commuting. So the heads of REITs and JTS were both commuting from Philly to New York, and that's how they were running their their, their respective institutions in New York. Now, Adler um, was a scholar also. He would at one point work for the Smithsonian and was into archaeology, and he later was a leading figure in the Joint Distribution Committee, and he was very involved in philanthropy. All of the Lithuanian Russia yeshiva um, in the interwar period would correspond with him. We have loads of letters in the joint archives. They would come meet with him. He was one of the only ones who was in the joint who was actually sympathetic to their cause, who met with them, who understood their plight, and who tried to allocate funds from the joint to support the yeshivas and Lita. And it was actually after his passing in 1940 that uh, basically yeshivas got much less, if any, support from the joint. But but he was the figure in the joint that the Litvish Russia Yeshiva of that time, all of them, one after another, would turn to, and uh, and 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 he was their go-to man. Um, so if we go um, move along from the uh, story of the Jewish Theological Seminary and Marias, Jastro, Cyrus Adler, and the roles that they played, I mentioned Dropsy College and Rabbi Revel, um, we move along to... Hasidus in Philly. And was there a Hasidus in Philadelphia? Yes, there was in several stages. And, uh, and the, also the Torah world of Philadelphia. So I want to talk about the Hasidim and Rebbes in Philadelphia and a little bit also about the, uh, the Torah world in Philadelphia, how that developed over in stages. One of the first Hasidish Shtiblach in America was called B'nai Halberstam. And it was founded in 1887 in Philadelphia. In 1889, they receive a Sefer Torah custom ordered from Tzans in Galicia, which makes sense, because they're B'nai Halberstam, and they dedicated in memory of the Divrei Chaim, who had passed away um, twelve years, uh, ten years before. Um, so that's that's one of the first plays of Hasidus. But but uh, the, the, the Torah world develops in Philly, also, Philadelphia also at early on. It was an incredible woman, one of the most amazing people who I only started to read about and hear about uh, recently an amazing woman named Jenny Miller, um, Jenny Miller Fagan. Her second husband was Fagan. And she would host the Russia Yeshiva in the interwar period who would come to the United States to collect. People like Rav Shimon Shkop, Rav Baruch Berlebevich, Rav Aaron Cutler, Rav Elchanan Wasserman, and the Rebbe Rayats, when he made his famous visit to America in 1929-1930, stayed for eight months in the United States, so for a few weeks he was in, I think about close to a month, he was in Philadelphia, so the Rebbe Rayats, the Friedrich Rebbe, 
stayed in her home in Strawberry Mansion neighborhood, which was the main Jewish neighborhood for many years. There were several Jewish neighborhoods in Philadelphia then. There still are several different neighborhoods in different parts of Philadelphia and in different areas. But Strawberry Mansion was a very prominent neighborhood for many decades. And she was literally the biggest donor to the yeshivas in Lithuania, in Poland, um, donating basically everywhere. Um, a very wealthy woman and very generous. And, and of course, in the local cause, she built up many of the local, she built up the local Talmud Torah, the early yeshiva, the first yeshiva that was in Philadelphia was called the Ohel Moshe Yeshiva. Um, and, and it, she supported, she used to host a large gathering every year for all the Talmud Torahs in the Northeast in Philadelphia every year on July 4th. And thousands of kids would come from New York and from New Jersey, from the whole area. She, she, um, um, literally there was no Torah cause in Philadelphia, in the United States, and in Eastern Europe that she was not involved with uh, during that time. Now, I'm fascinated um, by, by this woman, Jenny Miller. I'd love to find out more. So if there's anyone who has any information about this somewhat unknown, incredible woman, uh, Jenny Miller Fagan, please send it over to me. Um, I would love to hear more about it, sources or pointing me anywhere in that direction, just putting it out there to our very knowledgeable listeners. Um, so I'm sure we'll come up with some great stuff. I mentioned the Rebbe Rayatz was in Philadelphia and stayed at this woman's home. He, on, While he was there, he visited the Liberty Bell. Um, I mentioned that July 4th and the Chagah Geula come out the same week. So he's he goes down to the Liberty Bell, which has a you know a pasuk from from by uh, by Yoivel, free freedom ringing you know throughout the land. I forget the exact words that are on the Liberty Bell, but from 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 the Torah, and he places a wreath of flowers beneath the Liberty Bell. And before placing it, the Rebbe says, "Liberty based on faith is the most proper and the strongest." And they also gave him the honor of sitting in George Washington's chair. So by Independence Hall. So very, uh, you know, accorded to the Rebbe. And and uh, if we move on to some of the most amazing rabbis who were in Philly over these, and we're not going to get to all the Rabbanim who were there because it's literally endless. We'll probably get to more of them in uh, part two. But one of the most prominent rabbis who were there for many, many years was Rabbi Bernard Leventhal. Um, he was grew up in Kovna. He got smicha from Yitzchak and Specter, and he, um, after his father-in-law, who had been a rabbi in Philadelphia, passed away at a young age. So he he takes over his position in uh, in eighteen ninety ninety one, and he becomes the rabbi in Philadelphia, where he remains for sixty one years in the Bnei Abraham uh, synagogue in Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia Rabbanim had long lives and they should continue to have long lives but a lot of the rabbis that we're going to talk about lived well into their 80s into their 90s even um, and he literally was involved in everything Rabbi Leventhal is someone who definitely deserves his own uh, episode he's one of the founders of Yeshiva University what eventually became you know, Yeshiva University, founder of the OU, founder of the Mizrahi in America, founder of the Agudas Rabbanim. He started the Hever Kadisha in Philly. He started the Kashras in Philly, Philadelphia. And he almost got killed for it, like in New York and in Chicago. The rabbis had to go through by the, by the Sheikh Tim and a lot of politics. And 
he almost left. He almost moved to New York and took to take over uh, Rabbeinu Jacob Joseph's uh, position as chief rabbi, but it didn't work out. He almost went to Chicago and to become the chief rabbi, but that didn't work out. So he stayed in Philadelphia, but um, he uh, he he was involved in in uh, he started the first day school in Philadelphia. He started the um, American Jewish Congress, the American Jewish Committee. Uh, I mean. He was he was involved in everything. In fact, I mentioned the Hebrew Kadisha, which is always something that I'm more interested in. The name of the cemetery that he set up was called Harazesim, um, which is nice. I don't know of any other place besides for the Harazesim that I always give tours in in Yerushalayim. I don't know of any other Jewish cemeteries that are called Harazesim. I don't even know how long it lasted. Um, as far as I know, it's not in use anymore. But uh, for a time, it was. So... He was um, the uh, the go-to person for everything in Jewish life and in 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 America for decades. Um, he was sent. He was the represent one of the Jewish representatives at the at the peace conference in at Versailles after after World War One. Cyrus Adler actually was another one of them. So Philadelphia had a nice uh, prominent presence there. Um, so Rabbi Bernard Leventhal is definitely someone who left his mark there. The one who becomes the main rabbi after him is another amazing individual, Ephraim Eliezer Yolis. And he lives to the ripe old age of 98 years old. And he was a chesidah essentially he came from Sambur, and he was uh, in Galicia. And he was actually a rav in a nearby town in Galicia, near Lvov, called Stri, which had the distinction of having the Ktsai Sachoshen many years earlier of being the Rav there. And when we go to Stri, we go to the Ktsai Sachoshen's cavern, actually in the Sivas, Rabbi Yaakov Leuberbaim is also buried there. So this Rabbi Ephraim Elias was in the same town, in Stri. Now he comes to America quite early, in 1921, right after World War I, and he becomes the rabbi in uh, Kerem Israel uh, congregation. In uh, in Philadelphia, and he was very close to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he's one of the people who meet the Friedrich Rebbe at, at Union Station when he arrives in 1930. But he maintained the relationship with the next Rebbe afterwards, also, and um, and he um, he was the uh, a very the the Rebbe, he's the Rebbe in Strawberry Mansion in that in that uh, community, and uh, he was the Rebbe there until the 1980s. So he's um, another prominent rabbi who left his mark right outside Philadelphia in Camden uh, was Rabbi Naftali Riff, also someone to talk about, and uh, you know, grandson of the Nitziv of Alojin. In fact, uh, tells when they came to America, they were planning on settling down in Philly, and eventually they went to Cleveland. Uh, but tells Yeshiva was going to be in go to Philadelphia, but Rabbi Riff convinced them that it wasn't a good idea. Yeshivas weren't exactly. Uh, it was, wasn't easy to set up a yeshiva. We'll see when we talk about the founding of the Philadelphia yeshiva, um, how challenging it was for Shmuel Kamenetsky and the ones who were with him to uh, to start the yeshiva. We'll get to that hopefully in a couple of minutes. Um, another, Phil, get, getting back to Hasidus, another early Rebbe there was Ramayshul Lifshitz, the Philadelphia Rebbe, who was a descendant of Rabbi Aryeh Leib Lifshitz, which was the Vishnitsa, a Hasidic dynasty from Galicia, who was known as the Arya de Beiloi, was the name of his sefer. He was a student of the Chayz of Lublin, a son-in-law of the Ismach Moshe of, of, of Il, the uh, founder of the Teitelbaum dynasty, and he actually was one who brought his father-in-law to Hasidus, which is also an interesting story, 
which perhaps we could talk about when we talk about the Ismach because most people who who were taken in by Hasidus were young, and here the Ismach was in middle age, in his 40s, and his son-in-law schleps him into Hasidus. Either way, this Rabbi this, this, Lelishitz uh, was also the father-in-law of Rabchatzkel of Shinov, the oldest son of the Devrei Chaim. So talking about a in the heartland of Galicia, Hasidus, and his descendant is Rabbi Lelishitz, and he becomes the Philadelphia Rebbe. He's the Rav in the Chevra Machziki Hadas Shul, where his son, Reb Chaim Uri Lifshitz, also helped him out before he moved to New York. And Reb Chaim Uri Lifshitz was a fascinating individual. He was the founder of Beis Yaakov, the girls' schools, as a day school in Philadelphia. Um, and later on, he was an editor of the Jewish Press, a tremendous writer and activist. And he was he worked in he was in in, in Tervidas. He served in a capacity there for many years. He wrote books and. He, he, in fact, got his smicha in Eitz Chaim in Yerushalayim. He learned in Yerushalayim when he was younger, the Sub Chaim Uri Lifshitz. But uh, his accomplishments, uh, an amazing amount of accomplishments that he did, both when he was in Philly and then later on when he moved to New York. He was the, um, he started a branch of Agudis Yisrael in Philadelphia. Um, he was very politically connected. He was the first Orthodox rabbi to open a Senate session, which he did several times. And uh, so that's Reb Chaim Uri Lifshitz. Another uh, Rebbe who lived in, in uh, Philadelphia was the Tolna Rebbe, one of the Tolna Rebbe's of that dynasty. Reb Tversky was in Philadelphia for many years. There was the Monastritcher Rebbe, Reb Yaakov Mesholom Zusher Rabinovich, which comes from the Linitz dynasty in Podolia in the Ukraine, which for a while was actually based in Uman. So if you think Uman is only Reb Nachman in Breslov, you got it wrong. The Manastritcher dynasty was in Uman. Linitz, Gedalia of Linitz, of course, was a Talmud of the Baal Shem Tev, So you're talking about his descendants. And, uh, and, and one of his descendants moves uh, to Brownsville, the father of this Reb Yaakov Meshulam Zusher Rabinovich. And, and in fact, he had a brother who was killed in the post-World War I pogroms back in the Ukraine. And he had a son, also a scion of the Manastritcher dynasty, who went to Yeshiva University and then, and then became a Rebbe. He became uh, another branch of this uh, Hasidus. I don't know how many Rebbes learned in YU, but you can add uh, him to the list. But either way, his uncle, this fellow's uncle, was, uh, was the Manasuch Rebbe in Philadelphia. Um, there are many, many more rabbis, which we'll have to get to in part two. But I want to move over to, um, to other institutions and people that are important in Philly history. You have um, you have a famous conservative synagogue located in Philadelphia, the Beth Shalom Congregation, and and it's a suburb, a suburb of Philadelphia. The reason that it, it ha- one of the reasons it's famous is because it's the only synagogue designed by the famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright. So again, making history in in Philadelphia. Of course, the Gimbel's Department Store. Was uh, was 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 started in Indiana, but the the Gimbel's brothers opened the main branch eventually in Philadelphia, which was where its headquarters were before it moved to New York City. Um, in moving to modern twentieth century post-war, one of the most important people till today uh, in in Philadelphia is like we mentioned in the dedication at the onset of the of this episode of Avram Shemtov. Um, Rav Ram Shemta was sent, was, grew up, was born in Moscow, in Russia, in the Soviet Union, eventually makes it out, makes it to the United States, and he's sent by the Rebbe as a shliach in 1960 already, 
and the Rebbe entrusted him with, he's one of the, you know, Rebbe, already then entrusted by the Rebbe with, with various different missions. Um, till today, he's one of the heads, he's, I think, the chairman of Agudas Hasidi Chabad, literally one of the biggest people in, in Lubavitch today. But already from then, the, the, he was uh, Lubavitch's envoy to the White House, to Capitol Hill, to Washington, where his son, Rablevi Shemtov, continues there and is actually based in Washington. And But if we, if we talk about what happened in Philadelphia itself, Sir Rabbi Shemtov has made history by making what's to now one of the trademarks, one of the most famous parts of Hanukkah celebrations everywhere in the world today, of the public Hanukkah menorah lighting. Rabbi Shemto is the one who started that tradition in the 1970s in Philadelphia, across from Independence Hall. It started out as something, you know, very casual, and it was controversial, and now it's part of the Hanukkah holiday. It's a public holiday, it's at the White House, it's everywhere, it's all the way around, everywhere in the world, it's not only the United States, and it starts off by a little menorah at the foot of the Liberty Bell at Independence Hall in 1974. Um, he also was involved in bringing the Rebbe's library from Poland and getting that over negotiating with the Polish government. Um, another Rav who was there in, in, the, in the earlier days was Rav Shalom Schneiderman, who was also the chassid of the Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad. And he was he opened the first yeshiva high school in Philadelphia, which didn't last that long, and he was on the Besden. But he leads us into our next topic, which is the founding of Philly Yeshiva, because Rabbi Shalom Schneiderman, also Rabbi Shalifshitz, that who I mentioned earlier, the um, the um, the, uh, the Hasidic Rebbe, who I mentioned earlier, so he was also involved in in uh, in as a catalyst for for the founding of the Philly Yeshiva, and 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 uh, and he helped. They both helped Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky open. So Rabbi Shalom Schneiderman was a, rub, a local rub, very involved in in Jewish education, worked hard, very, very hard, literally tireless efforts to build Torah in the early years of Philadelphia. And unfortunately, he never had children, and he was also killed tragically in a in a car crash. He was quite young, but he um, was involved in getting the Philly Yeshiva started. So Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky comes in 1953, um, to, sent by Cutler from Lakewood, to start a yeshiva, a base medrash, a couple of years later, a high school uh, comes along and Philly yeshiva with the personalities that were there, people like um, like Rebellious Svei and Remendel Kaplan and Yibadal Chaim of Shmuel Kamenetsky, um, who are there. That for sure deserves uh, an episode in itself. So just the 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 fact that it was a outside of New York yeshiva, one of the first ones in America. One of the first ones started as an American yeshiva. You had places like Tells that started in Cleveland. That was a rebuilding of an old European yeshiva by the European Russian yeshiva. Here is uh, um, American-educated Russian yeshiva, Lakewood Talmidim, who were starting yeshiva relatively early on. And it, although it, its original intention was to primarily service the local community, it ends up being a yeshiva for a cross America and the, many coming from New York and from other ways already in the 1950s, and then they have this high school going on. Um, the the founding Rosh Hashiva was like like I said, Rosh Kamenetsky, and along with Reb Dave Schwartzman, who at that time was Reb Aaron Cutler's son-in-law. And um, when he when he um, got divorced, he uh, from Reb Aaron Cutler's daughter. So 
he eventually left Philly. a couple of years later, 1955, 1956. He moved back to Eretz Yisrael. He started Beis Talmud in San eventually a few years later. Um, so the one who took him over was Rebellious Svei, who was another prominent Talmud of Rebaran Cutler. At that time, he was by his father-in-law, Ravram Kalmanovich, in the Mir Yeshiva in Brooklyn, but he comes over to Philly, and the two of them together, Shmuel and Rebellious Svei, lead the Yeshiva. They bring in eventually Remendel Kaplan, who was a Talmud of Rebbechanan, Vasserman and Baranovich, where he grew up. He actually grew up in the city of Baranovich. His mother was the one who uh, tried, helped support the Yeshiva in the early years in Baranovich. Um, who was, she was killed by the Nazis. But um, Remendel Kaplan was also learned in the Mir in Poland, and he was a Rebbe in, in the Hebrew Theological College in Chicago, and eventually became Skokie for many years. And in the 1960s, he's brought over to Philly as, uh, as a personality from the pre-war world, um, the non-Lakewooder who's in uh, Philadelphia. They're constantly expanding the Philly Yeshiva, 1969, they go through a major expansion and then a major dedication of the new building in 1983. Uri Mandelbaum was brought in um, early on from Lakewood as a Rebbe and then later as the principal, as the Menahel of the Yeshiva, Ravram Golombik was brought in as the Mashgiach early on. These people remained many years building the Yeshiva as it grew uh, through the years. So I just want to uh, mention some of the other prominent Rabbanim and then a few prominent personalities uh, who are in uh, Phil, Phil, who come from Philadelphia or who lived in Philadelphia? There was first of all Baron Felder, one of the closest students of Ramosha Feinstein, a big Paisik in all areas of halacha, who was the rabbi of the Bnei Israel Ohoy Tzedek uh, Shul for many years. Um, and then you have another neighborhood in Philadelphia called the Lower Marion uh, neighborhood, when the Lower, Mar- Lower Marion Synagogue started in the 1950s with just a few families and became uh, eventually the largest Orthodox synagogue in Pennsylvania. And uh, so they had one of the early rabbis there for a short period of time was, was, the, was Rabbi Aaron Rothkoff, who today is Rabbi Aaron Rakefet Rothkoff. Um, and he was a rabbi there for a short period of time. Rabbi Levin had a grandson who was there for a period of time. And they had um, other... other uh, other famous and important Rabbanim. Um, it's interesting, I got an email from someone the other day, he said, I heard you're doing um, an episode on Philly, even though he's not Jewish, but you have to mention um, Philly's most famous uh, sports star, Kobe Bryant. Now, first of all, there is a Jewish connection there. His father was a coach at the Akiba School, and 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 uh, Kobe used to practice at the gym, but I would argue that Wilt Chamberlain, who came from Philadelphia, was a more famous sports star, uh, who was a from Philadelphia. And there's an even better Jewish connection there because the owner of the 76ers, when Wilt Chamberlain was playing for Philadelphia 76ers, and when he was busy losing to the Celtics every single year because no one could beat Bob Cousy, John Havlicek, and Bill Russell, except for once. So, but the owner was a Jewish owner, two Jewish owners, in fact, uh, Irv Kozlov and uh, Ike Richman. So they were the owners of uh, big businessmen. Irv Kozlov was a, a son of Russian immigrants and became a, and he bought the Syracuse Nationals and he brings them to Philadelphia and renames them the 76ers, 76ers uh, patriotic name. And, um, and his family actually still runs the business and is active in many uh, Jewish causes in Philadelphia. So, um, Larry Fine of the Three Stooges is a big Jewish Philadelphia name. 
I mentioned Netanyahu. Um, there was a Colonel Max Friedman who was a Civil War hero. Uh, he who was a, a Civil War from that time who was from Philadelphia. One of the most famous Philadelphian Jewish Philadelphians was Benjamin Guggenheim. Meyer Guggenheim moves from Switzerland to Philadelphia, and he had seven sons, most of whom went into his business. He was a mining and smelting magnet. He was a king, one of the wealthiest people in the world. And one of his sons who went into the business was Benjamin Guggenheim, who was, you know, one of these high-flying, high-class society people and met his end on the Titanic um, when he realized that there wouldn't be no place for him um, on the lifeboats. Um, he got dressed in his best evening dress. He ordered brandy, and he sat by a table with his valet um, by the grand staircase where he was last seen uh, on the Titanic, where he went down with it. So that's Benjamin Guggenheim. He was a very famous personality, one of the richest people in America when he died. Um, another someone who lived in Philadelphia for a while when he was when he gave lectures at Temple was Zalman Shachter Shalomi, who also is someone who we should give another episode to. Was a really interesting personality. Um, Philadelphia ha had a, a Jewish uh, senator. I guess Pennsylvania had a Jewish senator, Arlen Specter. Um, Matisyahu was born in Philadelphia before he moved to White Plains. But um, if we go back to rabbis uh, for a minute, we'll, I guess we'll end off part one with rabbis again, just to give, give, a, give a more spiritual uh, feeling for the end. One of the most important rabbonim in Philadelphia history was Rabbaruch Lezerovsky. Rabbaruch Lezerovsky was, was, um, was a Litvish Rav who learned in Navard, one of the Navardic branches in Uleknik in, in, in Lithuania. And um, and then later learned in Radin by Raftali Shrup, Chavetz Chaim for many years, a very big Talmud Chacham. And then he was a Rav in Lodz before the war. He was a there was a Litvish community in Lodz, and he ran the Chevra Shas Shul where he gave shiurim, and he was involved in a a um, Torah journal called Chidushe Torah of Mir alumni in Lodz. He wrote for them, and he was involved with that. And when the war breaks out, he's in the Ludge ghetto, and he survives the Ludge ghetto, he survives Auschwitz, he survives the death march, and he survives Dachau. He literally went through the entire Holocaust from beginning to end like a real Polish Yid. And he um, ends up in the DP camps, and he settles down in Munich, where he gets very involved, like many rabbis of the post-war, in uh, Iguna questions for women, in, in all kinds of uh, halachic uh, challenges that arose before rabbis, and he himself is a survivor, a broken survivor, and this is what he's dealing with. He becomes the chief rabbi of the Munich, the newly established Munich Jewish community after the war, until he decides he remarried, and he moves to America in 1952, and he becomes um, the rabbi, uh, a rabbi in, in Philadelphia, where he remained for many, many years. Again, he had a tremendously long life he, until he was 94, and he was in the Besden in Philadelphia, and he was involved in the Teferis Yisrael and the Beis Yaakov uh, shuls. He was in the Agudas Rabbanim and part of the Kashrus, and he kind of succeeded Rabbi Ephraim Eliezer Yolis, who I mentioned earlier, um, who also lived till he was like 98. But when he passed on, so um, Rabbi Lezerovsky uh, became the, the main uh, chief rabbi, as it were, uh, of, uh, of uh, Philadelphia. 
We'll have to go for a part two sometime soon. So if you're interested in sponsoring that, be in touch with me. But this is a little taste of Jewish Philadelphia. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. Geber is G-E-B-E-R-E-R. You can subscribe to uh, Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at J Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.